Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. If I asked you, What was the most consequential period of time in human history? What would you say? Maybe you'd go back to when we first developed tools or discovered fire. Or maybe you'd look to the agricultural revolution or even later to the advent of the printing press. Obviously, lots of events in human history have had massive consequences in shaping the future. But in terms of the most change packed into the smallest amount of time, what if I told you that there was no period more consequential than the period between 1870 and 2010? I'm Sean Ailing, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Brad DeLong. He's an economic historian at UC Berkeley. He also served as assistant treasury secretary during the Clinton administration. And he's written a wildly ambitious new book called Slouching Towards Utopia. In it, DeLong calls the period from 1870 to 2010, the long 20th century. And he argues that during that time, almost every aspect of economic life in the global North totally changed. That kind of complete turnover in a relatively short span of time has no other precedent in history. So to start this thing off, I wanted to know, what was the world and its economy like in 1870? A world right before everything was about to change. Before 1870, there's an awful lot of patriarchy which means that if you're 50, especially if you're female in 50, and if you don't have surviving sons, you have no social power at all. So enormous incentives to have surviving sons. And yet back before 1870, about a third of humans wind up without them. What that means is that there are enormous pressures if you get more resources to have more kids, to try to raise the odds that you'll have a surviving son. Which means that before 1870, whenever technology improves, you know, and technology improves slowly, population increases in result. Humanity is trapped in a world in which people are 
really desperately poor, in which most people's standard of living is what the World Bank would say is something like $3 a day now. And history consists of the bulk of the population trying to hold body and soul together on $3 a day by producing stuff. And an elite figuring out how to take from them so that the elite can have enough and have its own high culture. And that's history up until 1870, when all of a sudden we get a productivity growth explosion. And ever since 1870, humanity's technological competence has doubled every generation, which means that it becomes clear pretty quickly that we are on the point of being able to bake a sufficiently large economic pie for everyone to have enough. And once you've solved the problem of baking a sufficiently large economic pie, the problems of slicing and tasting it, of distributing it equitably, and of utilizing it so that people feel safe and secure and are healthy and happy, those should be easier, second-order, less naughty problems than the problem of baking a sufficiently large economic pie. And yet, since 1870, although we've done amazing, remarkable things in terms of mastering nature and organizing ourselves to become unbelievably rich, you know, the problems of slicing and tasting of distribution and utilization pretty much continue to flummox us. And so here we are in a world today which no one would call a utopia. There are still 500 million people who spend two hours a day or so thinking about how hungry they are and how much they'd like more calories. We have killer robots stalking the sky above Syria and Ukraine. And half a mile from my extensive Berkeley professor house, there is a man living in a box. But why 1870? Why is that the hinge point? What is it or what series of things collide at that moment in history that produces this explosion? Around 1870, we were very lucky in getting the development of the Industrial Research Lab to rationalize and routinize the discovery and development of technological ideas. And we also got the modern corporation to rationalize and routinize the development and deployment of ideas and those in the context of a third thing we got, largely due to the British Empire, globalization, which made it immensely profitable to distribute and diffuse useful technologies around the world as quickly as possible. Those more than quadrupled the rate at which humanity's technology was advancing. Before 1870, technology was losing its race against fertility. After 1870, all of a sudden, we were winning it. We were winning it decisively. There are people who say, no, the eye of the needle we passed through, the lucky breaks came earlier, either with the founding of the Royal Society in the 1600s, and when people start thinking about ideas in terms of whether they're empirically true rather than whether they're useful for the upper class, or even earlier after the Black Death with the development of bourgeois market relations of production. And then there are people who talk about Emperor Heinrich IV standing in the snow outside of the castle of Canossa in 1070, and the law becoming something that constrains even the most powerful. Lots of arguments about when the decisive moment came, but there's no doubt in my mind that 1870 was when the explosion actually happened, no matter when the fuse was lit. So we have these advances, not just in technology, but in our 
organizational capacity. Yes. And this leads to an explosion in material prosperity. But as you were just saying, and as you write in the book, and now I'm quoting you, that prosperity is unevenly distributed throughout the globe to a gross, even criminal extent. Yes. So there's this tension between economic growth and what I'd call a sustainable distribution of resources. And you see this tension personified by these two Austrian economists. There's Friedrich von Hayek on the one side and Karl Poyanyi on the other. Can you say a bit about that interplay and why you chose those two as a way to tell the story? Right-wing economist Friedrich von Hayek, best known for his book The Road to Serfdom, about how the British Labour Party's attempts to move to a halfway house between a free market and a socialist economy were doomed to failure. Hungarian political economist Karl Polanyi, who wound up living in Canada, who thought perhaps most deeply about the interaction of economics, politics, and society in the first half of the 20th century. In some ways, Friedrich von Hayek was an absolutely great genius that he saw more clearly than anybody else. That if you are trying to actually get humans to pull together— a centrally planned thing with a boss. You know, the boss is going to be up at the top and absolutely clueless, getting bad information from below and not really understanding what to do and issuing commands that must then either be obeyed and produce bad consequences or evaded, and then you have to explain why it didn't happen. Centrally planned command and control systems do not work well. With bureaucracies, you do somewhat better as everyone's following a rule book. But, you know, the rule book works for only about a third of the cases that actually happen. And otherwise, people have to improvise, and, you know, they improvise based on whatever the hell is going on. If you can get a decentralized system up and running in which you solve the problems of information and incentivization, if you can get... The decisions made by people who know what's going on, and if you can give them incentives to make the right decisions, then you can turn humanity into an incredibly effective anthology intelligence in which the entire brain power of humanity, rather than that of one guy at the top or a small committee writing a rule book, is actually tuned to solving problems. And that is what a market economy does, provided it's competitive and provided that market prices are in accord with social values, and provided that the income distribution accords with, you know, utility and dessert and so forth. And so Friedrich von Hayek saying technology is doing wonderful things, we can apply these to create a human world, a rich human world, only if we recognize that the market economy is an essential part of that. And then Hayek goes another step, and he says that is all we can ask for. If we ask for social justice of any form as well, if we ask that the market not just make us rich, but also make things fair, it's all going to come crashing down and we'll be on the road to serfdom, precisely because asking for fairness is a step too far. And so better never to ask, better to simply accept that the market giveth, the market taketh away, and say, blessed be the name of the market. To which Karl Polanyi responds, well, yes, A, that is very, very unfair, but it's also not something people will stand for. Right. 
try to impose a system in which the market rules everything, in which the only form of social power comes from your wealth, in which the only rights that are recognized are property rights. And people will explode in revolution and resistance because people will think they have other rights and demand that those be recognized. Yep. And so ever since 1870, humanity's technological competence is doubling every generation, Schumpeterian creative destruction, the forces of production underlying technological hardware underneath human society is being radically transformed every generation, which means we have to figure out how to rewrite the sociological, political, economic, organizational software so that it actually runs on top of this new forces of production hardware and does not crash. And as you try to frantically rewrite it, people are caught between the Hayekian imperative that we need the market economy to be a very important part of this in order to actually make use of our technology productively. Against the Polanyi thing, if that is what you do, you're going to wind up with something that crashes catastrophically. That people will react, and you know they may react well, FDR and the New Deal, they may react very badly, Benito Mussolini and fascism, but they will react. And that interplay is most of the political economy story of humanity since 1870. And I think of that organizational code, as you put it, as the ideologies, the dominant ideologies governing our society. And we had mm -hmm. several competing ideologies in the 20th century. There's liberalism and communism, fascism, which you just mentioned. And these are responses to these new social possibilities created by all that technological production. Mm -hmm. Liberalism basically kind of wins that battle, though it does seem to be a little bit <laughs> on the ropes at the moment. I'm sure we'll come back to that. But I'm curious for the moment what you think was different about these post-1870 ideologies, and if you think they were radical enough to meet the sweeping changes in the material conditions of human beings. 1870, you have a steam power economy. In 1900, you have a kind of second industrial revolution, you know, a chemicals and electricity and diesel economy. By 1930, you have mass productions coming online. Then you post-World War II, you have mass consumption, middle-class societies. Then global value chain. Now we're moving into infobiotech. Each of these is a major, major transformation. And, you know, we look back before 1870, before the steam power economy, and we say, yeah, the 1650 commercial economy that underlay the gunpowder empires of the time, that really was as different from steam power as steam power was from Second Industrial Revolution. And yeah, you go back from 1650 to 1000, back to the feudal economy, and kind of that was different. But the transformation from feudal society in 1000 to gunpowder empire society in 1650 you have 650 years to do it. And from 1650 to 1870, you kind of have 220 years to do it. Yeah. So the processes are much, much slower. The processes of adaptation and adjustment, you have many more tries to experiment and move this way and correct and so forth. And it's not that the corrections are essentially good. 
Most of governance before 1870 really is some elite, some bunch of thugs with spears or hand cannon, together with their tame accountants, bureaucrats, and propagandists, you know, figuring out how to run a force and fraud scheme on the rest of humanity and grab enough for themselves since there isn't enough for everyone. But after 1870, politics and governments can be something else. You focus a ton on the pace of technological change. Mm -hmm. And that's a big variable for me personally when I'm thinking about history. Because you're right. You know, earlier you mentioned Joseph Schumpeter's creative destruction. Yeah. This idea that capitalism entails new innovations, constantly supplanting and replacing old ones. And so that violent force, it's not new, but the pace of change and disruption is so much faster now. And it's only getting faster. Yeah, and you have more time to get out of the way. Economic transformation is always going to destroy industries, occupations, livelihoods, and whole communities. But it kind of took, the enclosures in England took 200 years. It didn't just happen in 25. But to this point about prosperity and progress, technological progress, Mm -hmm. why didn't all that prosperity and all that innovation lead to an enduring peace? I mean, it should have been good, right? It should have been good times. Why did it give way to unprecedented war and destruction? How did we screw it all up, I guess is what I'm asking. Well, in some ways, it did lead to good times. Modes of production, modes of communication, modes of domination— Technology can be turned to great evil as well as to great good. You can make more. You can also destroy more. And you can destroy more at a significantly greater pace. And you can destroy more more thoroughly. A pre-1870 Chinese government simply would not have had the competence to tell people that they should build backyard steel furnaces. And that they should stop farming for three months in order to produce industrial goods. And then it would not also have had the administrative capacity to keep grabbing what it thought was the urban share of the harvest, even as the harvest failed. A pre-1870 Chinese regime did not have the organizational technologies of domination to create something like the famine that followed the Great Leap Forward, in which perhaps 75 million people in China die and, you know, die entirely by accident. Our predecessors before 1870 would have asked the same question as you. They would have said that most of what goes wrong with human society is precisely because we cannot bake a sufficiently large economic pie. And so if anyone is to have enough, it has to be by becoming part of this force and fraud scheme, you know, by becoming an elite and creating the ideologies to justify the elite's appropriation. When Joseph Proudhon is writing in 1840 that property is theft, it's not really a metaphor. It really is. It's things that have been stolen and arrogated overwhelmingly, many of them based on the idea that we deserve this because our ancestors conquered Gaul from the Romans in the train of Clovis the Frank. But, you know, you kind of read the works of Lenin while he was sort of in hiding at various points in time and of the future he's trying to build or that he thinks he's trying to build. And about how, you know, once you have Soviet power plus electrification, 
everything will be easy and everyone will do their job. And yes, there will be an administration of things that still has to be done. But people will rotate through the administrative jobs and they'll be really easy to do because all you have to do in order to do an administrative job is you know, to add, subtract, multiply, divide, and issue appropriate receipts. And on the one hand, I want to say, wait a minute, Vladimir, you have been trying to organize a revolution and run a political party. Surely you know that humans are much too ornery for the jobs of administration and coordination to be kind of things that can be done in rotation by pretty much everyone. It requires a very strange, charismatic human psychological skill set to do. And on the other hand, I think, yes, that's really how it ought to be. If you want to live a good life, it's much easier to do so by making friends rather than actually trying to dominate people and boss people around. And yet, if you want to say that 1870 marks the point at which war and other forms of domination become really obviously stupid ways to get people to cooperate with you, we have had very little success in moving away from those kinds of social systems, even though there are deluded idealists like Steven Pinker who think we are domesticating ourselves into a peaceful civilization relatively rapidly. Oh, God. Don't get me started on that. Um. (laughs) No, it's a noble hope. We're going to take a quick break, but when we're back... In the middle of the long 20th century, there was this 30-year period where social democracy really flourished. How did we get this close to utopia? Support for The Gray Area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They've used Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. The 
there is this beautiful little golden run <laughs> between the years of 1945 and 1975. And I shouldn't say it that glibly, obviously. There were lots of things wrong with the world during that window. Yeah, yeah. But what we get during that window is the rise of social democracies. Right. We erected these welfare states without sacrificing all this growth, right? We were having our cake and eating it too, it seemed. Yes, we have the shotgun marriage of von Hayek to Polanyi with John Maynard Keynes, either giving the blessing or holding the shotgun. And things are growing much faster than before. And except for this little Cold War going on there, humanity is getting closer to utopia extremely rapidly. Yes, closer, closer. Mm -hmm. Closer. If this whole post-industrial, globalized economy thing was going to work, that seemed like the way to do it, or at least we were inching closer to it. Mm -hmm. And it is an important part of the story. And I want to ask, you know, how we got that social democracy in the first place. Was it the Great Depression? Was it just a happy accident of history? I do think that the Great Depression required the falling apart of the pseudo-classical semi-liberal order that had been growing from 1870 to 1914, that that had fallen apart with the coming of World War I. It was clear things weren't working and that you needed some kind of replacement. That there was a successful replacement was, I think, a combination of the fact that the Great Depression greatly intensified the belief that there was a need for big change. And also pure luck that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was in the right place at the right time. FDR's view was, you know, we need to get out of this, try everything. We're going to try everything and reinforce success. It was not ideological in its day. He really did try everything and tried to reinforce success. And what seemed to Roosevelt to succeed then became the pattern of what Gary Gersel and others call the New Deal order. And then the fact that the United States was so dominant and hegemonic after World War II spread that to the rest of at least the industrialized world and gave us the pattern for post-World War II social democracy. So go back to 1928, say the Republican Party refuses to nominate its relatively progressive guy, Herbert Hoover. Enthusiasm is weak. The Democrats sweep in in 1928. Depression comes, Democrats can't deal with it, Herbert Hoover gets his chance in 1932, Herbert Hoover is the president in 1933, with really no clue as to how to solve the Depression and not FDR's willingness to experiment. And I see in that counterfactual world, we never get the 30 glorious years of social democracy after World War II. Yeah. We get a society that's much, much worse. So yeah, we were lucky in some ways that the story of successful economic growth and our at least trying to make steps in solving the problems of distribution and utilization, that we were allowed to continue with that story after World War II, that in some ways that's just good luck. What's so interesting, and this is something you talk about, is that America absolutely could have gone the way of the fascist during that period, right? But we didn't. And you think that's basically just sheer luck. It's just sheer luck that we went the way of the New Deal and didn't go the way of Mussolini. If we run that experiment over again, do you think it goes another way? Or it's just as likely to go another way? Or more likely, even? Um, you know, these kind of counterfactuals are hard to think about. Yeah, but they're fun. They're fun. They're great fun. I do think that France's equivalent of FDR, Leon Blum, fails, right? He's unable to master foreign policy and get aid to the Republicans in the Spanish Civil War. His attempts to do a New Deal 
simply do not work. Britain's attempt at a new deal also largely fails, so much to the extent that one of the British Treasury's chief economists winds up ranting that even after Britain has abandoned the pound sterling and there's no reason why Britain can't attain full employment, his bosses are still running around crying fire, fire in Noah's flood. Germany did get a successful recovery from the Great Depression (laughs) in economic terms. But as a result of that, 50 million people died horribly and were lucky it wasn't much, much more. The only other place than the United States that got it right was Japan, where Takahashi Korakiu says, you know, we don't really like this Western economics. We adopted it as long as it was good for us, but it's not good for Japan now. We need to focus on getting Japan back to work and so forth. And maybe in FDR's absence, someone else would have been able to take that road, but the odds really seem against it. So this great run of social democracy, it comes to an end in the 70s, -hmm. and that gives rise to the great boogeyman. Neoliberalism. Neoliberalism. Yes. Explain to me the appeal of neoliberalism, which I might... I guess, loosely described as the renewed belief in the power of markets rather than the state alone to achieve social democratic ends. There is a kernel of right-wing classical liberalism in exile, saying we need to get back to the pre-Great Depression system, that FDR's New Deal really has been the wrong system of governance. But there are left-wing as well as right-wing critiques of social democracy. There are a lot of people who say it is much too bureaucratic. There are a lot of people who say it is much too prone to rent-seeking, that the people who are doing well out of it are the people who happen to have their hands on levers of social power, which are assisted by the entire bureaucratic alphabet soup performance of an overmighty government. There are people who say that it is much too rigid, that it's turning us into a group of mindless cogs in bureaucracies of one sort or another, that much of the 1960s counterculture was a reaction against the view that the assembly line office culture that was necessary for the prosperity of social democracy was positively inhuman. You have Steve Jobs' 1984 Super Bowl Macintosh launch commercial as perhaps the epitome of this. That if you don't buy a Macintosh and so take control of your own information and become an entrepreneur rather than a cog, you're going to wind up being lectured at by some bureaucratic big brother in some colorless gray suit. With one will, one resolve, one cause, we shall prevail. The feeling was that too many big organizations constraining people's lives in too many ways was something we needed to get away from. But what can we get away to? But overwhelmingly, what we get away to is the idea that we'd gone too far in correcting against von Hayek and that we need to remember how good the market can be, how wonderful it is at crowdsourcing, how much better things are done if you let market forces 
rule and summon the ingenuity of everyone who wants to be prosperous and get rich to solving social problems. Plus the idea that taxes had been too high on the rich, so they spent their time buying political influence and figuring out how to evade taxes rather than being good entrepreneurial job creators. And that subsidies had been too great for the non-rich. Too many people feather-bedding their way through society and not contributing. Whether it's Teamsters members using the Interstate Commerce Commission's constraints on competition by railroads in order to jack up the price of trucking services. Or in its most racist fashions, the idea that black women would have an extra child in order to get that nice AFDC boost and so go out and party. The New Deal order was distributing a lot of good things to people as entitlements simply because they were citizens. Say, if you think that humans are in some sense gift exchange animals, that we love to get into relationships with others in which each of us does the other favors, and we each think that we owe something to the other even though we both are benefiting enormously from this relationship, if you think of that as one template for human interaction— then social democracy produces an awful lot of people who are very fearful and angry about how others are being the moochers and the takers. And who the moochers and the takers are differs very widely in eras, in places, among classes, among ethnicities. But still, there's a strong sense that other people should definitely not get more than they deserve. And yet, the way that social democracy gives out its benefits means it's going to generate those feelings virtually everywhere. How does the, the Great Recession in, in 2008 fit into this historical narrative? You know, it's interesting, right? Where somehow, will we maybe look back from our, our perch in a few decades and see that as the beginning of the end for the neoliberal era? Because there, you see what we end up having is almost the reverse of what you're just describing, socialism for the very rich and free market capitalism for everyone else, right? And I think that's the beginning of a lot of discontent that is now bubbling up in our politics in very destabilizing ways. I think it's complicated, right? Yeah. That you say that we don't like, that social democracy is unfair because it treats the moochers and takers as equals to us when they really are not. And we need to move back to of Marvan Hayek in you know, the era of big government is over, drown the government into the bathtub view, and move back toward the market distribution of income. And von Hayek would say, all right, full stop, the market is unfair because fairness consists of giving people what they deserve while the market gives you things if you happen to have the right property rights that are valued at the moment. Hayek would then say, full stop, it's unfair, but we're rich, and we should accept this. Yet, neoliberals want to go a step further and to say that success in the market is a sign of your moral virtue as well, and that failure is a sign of your moral non-virtue, in which case the market then becomes truly godlike. It issues its judgments, and its judgments are right and just and are to be obeyed. In which case, interferences with markets become, as John Maynard Keynes snarked in an earlier similar crisis, impious, positively impious. I just don't know how you can look at the boom-bust cycles of the last hundred years or so and still bow to the omnipotent logic of the market. You can't. You can't. <laughs> but 
gods have always been inscrutable in what they do. This is religion we're talking about here. Yes, yes. Look, you've called yourself, perhaps a little cheekily, a neoliberal shill. Yes, okay. (laughs) Do you still hold to that core idea that the market is the best way to achieve social democratic ends? Not a perfect way, but the best way we have. Well, you know, can be a good way. Other ways often require an awful lot of fancy footwork to make them work. We have bureaucracies, and we know how bureaucracies work. There's a rule book, and you essentially turn everyone into a software bot, following the steps of the rule book. And yet you do this because you need and want coordination, and it fails in lots of ways. And we all know how central planning turns people into not so much software as actual real robots, doing the decrees of someone at the top of the organization who probably doesn't understand what's actually going on at well. And so there's almost enormous amounts of negotiation for other ways to run things. A market in which you give people with the information, the power to do things, and the incentive to do things that are good— As long as market prices are aligned with social values, that's an absolutely wonderful way to get things done. The problem is aligning market prices with social values. So to that extent, yes, I am still a neoliberal shill. Yeah, I mean, look, to me, the choice isn't any longer between the free market or central planning. That's an anachronism. If you deny that the market works on some level, then to me, that's just not a serious argument. Yeah. But... The question is how to use the state to check some of the excesses of the market that produce some of these boom and bust and great recessions. Yeah, definitely. How to align market prices with social values is, in fact, a very deep and hard and complicated problem. Yeah. That back when Sam Bankman-Fried was riding high and people were saying, well, you know, he's making a lot of money and he's making it by selling, selling people shovels in a fool's gold rush. But I say, yeah, but Selling people shovels to do this is actually really not good for them in the long run. They're highly likely to wind up bankrupt. Is this a very ethical thing to do? That the whole idea of become as rich as possible and then spend the money on effective charities seemed to presuppose that you became rich by selling people things that they needed and they wanted and were good for them, rather than by selling people things that in the long run they would be very sorry they had bought. And that's a deep problem with even more social democratic friendly views of the market, that aligning market prices with social values is very complicated and difficult as well. So Polanyi was right. Yes, I think we can agree on that. Okay. We've got to take one last short break, but when we're back, Brad says the long 20th century ends in 2010. Why? So why does the long 20th century end in 2010? I know this has to do with the housing crisis. I know about the Great Recession. But it also seems to me that we're still very much living in that same paradigm, even today. So why do you end your story there? Yeah. 
Governor Ned Gramlich goes to Alan Greenspan and says, we need to do something about this mortgage market and especially about these mortgage-backed securities. And Alan Greenspan says, well, first, it's not my job to keep people from making stupid investments. The people who are buying these houses, uh, teaser rate mortgages, what they're really doing is they're getting a three-year low-rent lease on a very nice house with an option to buy later on. Plus, if I get in the way between lenders who want to lend and borrowers who want to borrow, each of whom has their congressman on speed dial, I'm going to get crowned into dust. We're going to let this roll forward, except that the market has its logic for letting people do this, and we can clean up the mess afterwards. And then come 2010, once there is a recession, once there is a big recession— The response is not, well, gee, the market has gone hopelessly wrong. We need to do stuff in order to get back to full employment very quickly. It's that, well, you know, we sinned by overspeculation, and now we must pay. And so you get Barack Obama up there in January 2010 and his State of the Union message saying not the New Deal Keynesian thing of we need full employment quickly. Economic theory teaches us that when the private sector sits down and stops spending, then is the time for government to stand up. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says that people had to tighten their belts in the past year. Now it's time for the government to tighten its belt. Even though Ben Bernanke is off there whimpering in the corner saying, I don't have the tools in monetary policy to get us back to full employment at all. I really do not need fiscal austerity. This view that the market had a logic and that logic was good is of overwhelming strength and plays a huge amount in shaping policy, except for the fact that there are enough technocrats in the Treasury and the Federal Reserve who say that when the market requires that all of these banks go bankrupt and the financial system fall into complete chaos, we don't let that happen. They view themselves as having had to roll boulders very much uphill to keep the political system from generating a financial collapse in 2008 and 2009, and that they did kind of all they could. And to have actually asked them to have done more than simply socialized the losses of the big banks is to have asked them to do things that were politically totally unsustainable, both from the right and also from the left. There was virtually no appetite for bailing out homeowners who had made bad decisions. And the bailout of the bankers was simply on the grounds of complete and total necessity. But the story continues, shadowed by four things that have emerged. The coming of global warming as a first-order civilizational problem. The fact that nuclear proliferation has achieved critical mass. The revival of something we will politely call neo-fascism. And I would also add the return of major power, war, and killer robots as number four are four things that make our slouching or our staggering toward utopia even more difficult since 2010 than they were before. And those four things mean that our story, that we're getting much, much better at baking the pie but still flummoxed by the problems of utilization and distribution, that that's no longer the main thread of the story after 2010. You had suggested in 2019 in response to Trumpism and in response to Republican intransigence, uh, to put it somewhat 
charitably mm-hmm. that perhaps there might have been a flaw in some of that uh, neoliberal thinking. Yes, yes. And I, I'm wondering, did you see an opportunity in something like the Bernie Sanders presidential campaigns with that movement? Did the Democratic establishment perhaps blow an opportunity to do something truly daring, not necessarily nominating Bernie? I mean, maybe that would have worked. Maybe it would have been a disaster. But by leaning into what he represented, we were talking about the Great Depression and the New Deal. You know, what we didn't get in response to the Great Recession was something analogous to what we got in response to the Great Depression. Why didn't we get something similarly ambitious in terms of a social democratic experiment from policymakers? You mean, why didn't Barack Obama say that as his first item of business, he was going to do a large omnibus reconciliation bill, which would have Medicare for all as health plans would have had a massive carbon tax for environmental, would have had a huge public investment program for recovery together with a couple of other things. Why don't you pass all of that by reconciliation January 2009? Would we have needed reconciliation? Didn't we have 60 uh, Democratic senators? We had 59 senators. Okay. It would be a heavy lift for a bunch of them. Yeah. But they certainly could have been more ambitious. I don't know. I don't know. The rhetoric about how a crisis is not to be wasted would seem to have indicated that they ought to have done that, and yet there was zero appetite for it. That I was with Paul Krugman screaming about how we need to have a second round of stimulus on tap in case the first round isn't enough. And the reaction of Obama was that what I'm doing by itself is utterly transformative and extremely bold. And I have zero appetite for going bolder. Instead, I want to do these things and then reach a grand bargain on entitlements with the Republicans as a bipartisan president. And the Affordable Care Act is a huge shift back to Mitt Romney's preferred health plan from Bernie Sanders's. Republicans have a very strong incentive to come to the table and negotiate rather than obstruct. Yeah, I think we can say in retrospect that was naive. Once again, the fact that nobody managed to handle 2009-2010 well in the North Atlantic. As someone who's worked in the government, I tend to see will and contingency as more important relative to someone like Adam Tooze, who tends to see everything as structurally inevitable. But if it's not structurally inevitable, there ought to be some country that managed to do it. You can say China managed to do it, but... China managed to do it only at the price of creating now a huge real estate overbuilding problem that it's trying to deal with. One problem you're keenly aware of is that whenever human beings start cooking up grand ideas about how to build a new society, lots of stuff tends to get blown up, including people. Yeah. Having said that, do you even see the potential for a new economic paradigm in the not-too-distant future, even if there's not even a term for it yet? Um, yeah. I mean, the underlying technological forces of production hardware continues to change, even if it is not changing as fast as it did before 2010. And it is moving us into an info-biotech economy whose structure we really do not understand well at all. And moving out of the age of mass production, even of late mass production of global value chains. We've already had several revolutions in forms of effective 
communication, both for scientific and other forms of knowledge, and for political organization in our lifetimes. The idea that podcaster is a profession is not something I would have imagined possible a decade ago. And that has powerful, powerful, powerful implications for how we organize ourselves, and the economy is very much a part of organizing ourselves. So I would say yes, but I would say I do not see what form it is going to take at all. You know, my worry is that we we start existing merely to justify the technologies and the industries we've built. Mm -hmm. We create these massive social and economic machines that embed themselves more and more into our inner and outer lives so that at some point human beings aren't actually making decisions anymore about how to organize themselves. We're just being pushed through history by the systems we've inherited right. and the incentive structures that define them. And that's the trap that it seems really hard to transcend. Well, the experience of all past generations weighs like an alp upon the brains of the living. As Karl Moch wrote in his 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, trying to understand how the hell it could be that someone who he regarded as as much of a clown as we regarded Donald Trump wound up as emperor of France in 1851 simply because he had a famous uncle in large part. We're looking to the past in terms of organizing ourselves, and that's pretty much all we can do. But, you know, we're not going to have the mass production economy that underpinned the New Deal back again. Right. You know, that things are in the saddle and ride mankind has been true for a long time and will become only more true. But in many respects, what individual people see as things which are constraining them, an awful lot of the time it's the interests and the demands and the desires and the patterns of other people. And so we ought to be able to think our way out of this. After all, there now are 8 billion of us, and that's 8 billion brains each of which at some level would like to be helpful. Is the road we're on now sustainable? Will it take something like a real crash to instigate some kind of course correction? I don't know, right? I would say if you want to get really depressed, you talk to Ezra Klein, right? Um, <laughs> Friend of the show. And his meditations. That our modern media shifts us from a public sphere of compromise, one in which everyone agrees we have a pretty comfortable common home here, but the left says we need to build an addition, and the right says we have to fix the holes in the roof, to one in which people trolling each other on Twitter forever. Who are your enemies? Who do you identify your enemies? As the first step everyone takes in gaining an audience, so that you cannot even be heard without starting out as we cannot compromise with these people, whoever the these people are. Well, you read my book. You know how I feel about that. Yeah. After all, I have just finished my cup of coffee, and because it was caffeinated, I am now highly wired and talking 30% faster than I usually do. But caffeine has its origin as a nerve poison for bugs, after all, right? No shit. I didn't know that. Well, yeah. Why else would it be? Hmm. And in the context of a bug nervous system... What does amping up the nervous system do? It causes it to crash. Indeed, only because we have these sophisticated monkey livers is it the case that we have to drink 50 cups of coffee in half an hour before we die. 
our modern media and information technologies are very much like caffeine to a nervous system. The question is, are we bugs or are we monkeys with sophisticated monkey livers? Are we moving back toward a politics of emotional spectacle and away from a politics of rational compromise? That certainly much more of modern drama and cinema and so forth seems much more like emotional spectacle than, say, intricate plot, discussion, and logical argument than we saw before. When the political economic history of the 21st century is written, what do you think will be the grand narrative? First, it will be how the world handled global warming, Hmm. or did not handle global warming. And second, it would be whether it is indeed a move back in a social democratic direction to the shotgun marriage of Polanyi and von Hayek, or whether the world finds itself moving in the direction of the shotgun marriage of von Hayek and Vladimir Lenin, or whether we move in the direction of whatever Indian political culture turns out to be in 50 years or so. Or whether indeed we find ourselves returning to a wheel of political authority and autocracy, in which democracy is regarded as being too likely to elect a Trump, and other more oligarchic forms of rule succeed themselves in some kind of alternating wheel of fortune. When I drink coffee, I don't drop nuggets like that. So (laughs) you must be starting out with better hardware than me. That's very gracious of you. But you have managed to get magnificent things out of all of your guests so far in all of this new series that you've started. That's incredibly kind. Thank you for saying that, Brad. And this was a ton of fun. I love these kinds of macro histories, and I I truly think you're one of maybe a handful of people, if that, that could have written it. So I'm glad you did. And once again, the book is called Slouching Towards Utopia. Brad DeLong, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much. And I think if we do get down to a world in which podcast hosts are no longer a mass, but instead a very small elite group, you are certain to be among them. Well, we're going to cut the part out where I fished for that, and we're just going <laughs> to okay. just going to oh. roll that. Yay. Eric Janikas is our producer. Amy Drozdowska is our editor. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. What'd you think? I love Brad. He is a truly encyclopedic thinker. And the guy just lives inside this history he's telling. I'm not an economics guy. And a story like this could be boring. But Brad is anything but boring. I feel like I learned a lot. And I hope you did too. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at the gray area at vox.com. And if you appreciated this episode, please share it with your friends, leave a review, blog about it. You do you. But know that we see you and we appreciate it. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays, but we're off this coming Thursday for Thanksgiving. Listen and subscribe. 